there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? Okay. Hello, Jatha. Uh, my name is Muhammad Ramadan. Uh, you can call me Muhammad or you can call me Mo. Majority of my friends and family call me Mo. Um, Lebanese. Moved to Canada in 2019. Um, I'm a teacher by trade, uh, by choice, uh, a science teacher. I'm a leftist in all of my thinking and life and love and relationships and uh, an activist, a photographer, a lover of art, and a lover of Palestine. Uh, Lebanese, by, Lebanese by birth, Palestinian by soul, that's why I, that when, when people ask me if I'm Palestinian, that's usually my answer. I was like, no, I was born and raised really close. But that border that was drawn by foreign forces does not really separate us. We didn't cross the borders. The borders crossed us. Crossed us, yeah. You can't see Mo, but he's wearing a keffiyeh, and we will be talking about Palestine. Mo's joined me here for a rant. Uh, recently, Lebanon has entered the fray in terms of talking about Israeli armed forces and their aggressions. Most recently, a Hamas leader was assassinated by the IDF. Yeah. I was going to say executed, assassinated. Language matters, right? Yeah. You hear me carefully crafting my words as I do this. In Beirut or around Beirut, uh, which is in Lebanon. And for those who've been paying attention, we know that this isn't the first time Israel has struck within Lebanon or Syria or within other nations under the guise that it's defending itself. I think... Two things kind of come up as this event happens, right? People start looking at Lebanon even more. I know this is not your first time carefully watching that particular part of the region as being Lebanese and your family over there. I mean, you've probably, I know you've had just your eyes glued, but I think a lot more people now are now looking and they need some explanations. They want to know what's happening, why. Did this all start October 7th kind of deal, you know, which we know it did not. So you're a good person to pull into the studio here with your knowledge and lived experience with Lebanon. I bet you Santiago is is disappointed he's not here. His family's also from Lebanon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got a he's got a good history too, and uh, through his dad and through living and what I'm guessing his dad grew up in Lebanon, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was born in 1986 in the middle of the Lebanese Civil War, which started in 1973. Uh, 
prior to my birth in 1982, the Israeli uh, military had invaded Lebanon, uh, bombed and invaded from the south of Lebanon uh, all the way to the capital, Beirut. Uh, they invaded in the hopes of fighting off the Palestinian resistance that they had pushed out of Palestine. Um, with the help of the right-wing factions in Lebanon and other regional forces. Post that, a few years post that, obviously Lebanese resistance started to form, uh, be it the communist resistance, be it the liberation fronts in Lebanon, uh, which led to the pushback against the military uh, invasion of Lebanon. The Israeli forces were kept towards the south part of Lebanon. They pretty much created a fenced off south part of Lebanon, and they stayed there till the year 2000. Um, if if you are aware of what happened, or if you're not aware of what happened, um, from 1982 onward, especially in the 90s onward, uh, the Lebanese Islamic resistance, or what you would hear called as Hezbollah, um, started to organize and started to grow um, in fighting Israeli military and their bases in south of Lebanon. Uh, it's a guerrilla war that they fought for all these years, and it, it was capped off in 2000 by pushing the Israeli forces completely out of the Lebanese borders and liberating the occupied Lebanese territories um, to 99%, 98%. We still have some Lebanese territories that are occupied in the south of Lebanon. They're the Shaba farms, the, we call them the Mazar al-Shaba, uh, which are historically Lebanese villages that are still currently under Israeli occupation. So if we want to talk about like United Nations uh, demarcation line or like the, the actual borders of Lebanon and North Palestine, those villages lie within the Lebanese borders, which are still under Israeli occupation. So this is just historically, up until 2000, our liberation from Israel. In 2006, Israel waged a war on Lebanon, which is known as the July War, uh, the 33-day war, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that was its biggest military operation post its exit from Lebanon, post its push from Lebanon. Um, so before before we get to current events, I want to dig in a little bit to the 2006 July War. Yeah. Because you describe it as an Israeli aggression. That's yeah. not how most listeners would have been told the story. And if you check most of your kind of mainstream sources... It is written very similar to the narrative that surrounds October 7th, that that particular conflict began on a very specific day where Hezbollah soldiers crossed the border, took hostages, IDF soldiers, and brought them back into Lebanon as leverage to release other prisoners. So... Right away, we know obviously the conflict didn't start then because you already have incurred political prisoners that need freeing, which is very similar to Hamas's motivations, which, you know, someone can discuss and argue to have political prisoners freed. Right. 
we call them political prisoners, but the reality of it is, is that a lot of these prisoners are civilian prisoners that have been taken without really any reason to take them. So, and they've been kept under military occupation, like under military um, detention. That's an important that. distinction to make because it does imply, you know, a, a guerrilla militia figure, a political prisoner, and that's definitely not always the case. Yeah. And some of them, some of them were, some of them were resistance fighters. Some of them were uh, leader figures or religious figures within the frame of the Lebanese Islamic resistance. Uh, some of them weren't. Some of them were just villagers who were in the south, uh, who were just abducted for just being there. Another one of the narratives that surrounds 2006 conflict between Lebanon and Israel is that it is a proxy war. And in this region, it is no, proxy wars are not new, right? Typically, we're talking about between the United States and Russia. But in this case, it's implied that it is between Israel and Iran, and that anything bad that happens in the region is surely funded and, and sponsored by Iran. What do you say to that positioning? Because you call that a war of liberation. I find it silly that we have to look at it from a lens, from a very Western lens of proxy wars when we want to refuse to look at, for example, why would we want to look... Okay, I'll reorganize my words a little bit better. Why would we want to look at it as a proxy war in terms of Iran funding, let's say, and helping out one element, but we want to refuse to see that, for example, the US or Western allies are funding vigorously and, like, with with no checks, their 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 arm in the region, Israel. Um, I don't see it as a proxy war. I see it as a war of resources, as a settler colonial war. Um, we've talked about wars of liberation. This, these are nations that are have been occupied over and over and over again um, at, from the time like. Post-Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire to the establishment of the current Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria maps, uh, which were divided by the Brits and the French, they they were not they were not left to be decided upon by the by the by the indigenous people who lived on those lands, because there's a big argument in the region for a greater Syria, for example. You still talk to uh, socialists in Lebanon who would talk about the greater Syria region, which is geographically the Levant, which is Lebanon, Syria, part of Palestine and Jordan. Like, it's, it's not... I don't like to talk about it as a proxy war. It's, and, and I say that because I grew up there, because it's, it is more personal to me than just sitting out and talking about these wars on a foreign land and how they're just part of a Cold War, part of a proxy war. I think that's the purpose, though, right, of, of them pushing that particular narrative. One, because everyone quite quickly sees Iran as a bad guy, whereas the War of Liberation, we understand that differently. Those are the good guys. And so you know, it also belittles 
the liberation movement and the fact that it even exists, like as though people don't rise up on their own with assistance, but driven from a need for liberation and a just right for liberation. And a proxy war just is so much easier to dismiss and then shape further narratives around, especially when you start talking about a regional conflict and the involvement of U.S. troops, right? It becomes almost automatic every time the idea of Iran being involved. And so, like, to be fair, I think most people do look at U.S. interventions as proxy wars, like what they do in training militia and arming Israel. I think most people do see it that way, but trying to paint these wars of liberation because you get the same comments being made about Hamas, that it is simply just an extension of Iran and all the credit for any advancements and and funding and everything just kind of goes to this one state that they've spent so much time demonizing that it's just like the go-to card, regardless of its grounded in any context, because we know that's part of revolutionary movements, right? Aid by other states. Cuba is famous for this. And guerrilla warfare often relies on, you know, training from experienced revolutionaries. So either way, I I ask you about these narratives, hopefully not to further it, but for folks listening that are going to hear these narratives and then be able to deconstruct it from a more lived, from your lived experience, right? Rather than just uh, scoffing it off. At, because I think, yeah, the, the war for liberation and every time we talk about Lebanon and its relations with Israel, one can't help see the parallels with Gaza, with Palestine. We owe it big time, I think, to, to Palestinians and to the Palestinian diaspora too to have changed over the last 90 days a lot of the way we speak. Like, I grew up in Lebanon talking about the Lebanese resistance. The term resistance and how uncomfortable it makes people feel here in the West. Like, when you talk about Hezbollah as a resistance movement or Hamas as a resistance, right? Um, You want to dissect about or you want to talk about like how they're bad guys or how it's a terrorist group, the, 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 um, the challenging of the narrative in terms of terms that we use to describe these movements as a resistance to the occupation forces is something that has been very costly to Palestinians. And I think the Palestinian diaspora knows that it's so very costly, yet they have not been silenced and yet they have not have refused to let go of using those terms. I, sometimes, you know, as an armchair observer, prior to October 7th, you know, you would see some of the use of words. Uh, martyr is another Yeah. use of language there to refer to someone killed by the Israeli forces, civilian or soldier. And, you know, there's probably other examples that in your mind, you know, you go, that's risky. That's risky language to use. You'd go that because of how you've been taught or the the narratives you grow up hearing here. 
Not just that, right? like as someone who's worked in politics, you understand that like sometimes your language should be measured, right? You're trying to encapsulate as big a crowd as possible. So you don't want to alienate people like there's other thoughts involved. But I was just once you kind of got to October 7th and realized that any form of resistance was now going to be like really criminalized, it was going to like we saw that reaction. And that's yeah. for me, that's why I asserted myself right from the beginning it's like this is a right i don't condone civilians dying but this armed resistance is a right this is not a criminal act on face it became clear to me why that language had always been important but i was naive right and i i didn't criticize them for it i i'm hopefully a better ally than that but in my mind sometimes i'm going "Ooh, wow that's you know, it hit you a different way when you'd read it and you would know which groups were using this language and which groups were maybe trying to do what I was talking about. you being a little more broad, being a little more <laughs> uh, delicate with the settlers. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to take from what you just said. I'm, I'm going to take a point that talks about when you mentioned like having to talk about like we don't condone the killing of civilians. Right. And I'd like, I'm, I'm going to ask a question to the audience or to listeners. And it's like, if we were to look at re the resistance movement in Lebanon or the resistance movement in, in Palestine and to look at their, the target of their resistance, who are they targeting in their resistance? Are they really going after civilians in a vicious way? Or are they, is there war against the military occupying machine. Will there be will there be civilian casualties in that process? War is ugly. Liberation wars are not are not something cushy. They're not a piece of cake. They're not something comfortable to to engage in. And yes, there'll be civilian casualties, right? But what is the target? Versus when you look at the settler occupying forces in Israel and their targets and the way they go about their military missions, be it in Lebanon or be it in Palestine. The casualties are the civilians on that end way more than the resistance they're trying to fight. Or quote unquote the like the terrorist organization they're uh, and I use the word terrorist from their point of view. I I won't I won't argue that. And it gets really complex too when you look at the act of settling. Yeah. The active act of settling. Like I think I'm not trying to remove myself from any responsibility, but I think there's a difference in this moment of and maybe I will regret this and, and rethink this, but between like Canadian settlers and Israeli settlers that are continuing to violently encroach on land. But on the other side, when we talk about guerrilla warfare, and that is one of, I do enjoy reading that book, um, written by Che Guevara. And civilian deaths are to be prevented for not just like moral reasons, but also strategic reasons. Um, like let's, war is dirty, war, like it, in all wars, civilian deaths are very high. We, uh, Che Guevara writes 
about the need to win over the populace. So it has a bit of a different application when you are talking about a civilian force that is recruited into the army and that is actively settling against your cause. You know, the Cuban Revolution was done in a way that liberated the people in the territories the guerrillas needed to pass through. But still, I still feel grounded in in saying that in any kind of war for liberation, the goal should still be to avoid civilian deaths. But it's not my role ever to second guess acts of resistance like this. And in this fog of war that exists particularly around this conflict, there's you know, it's not even fully understood exactly how everything unfolded or the motivations or the plans. So, and that becomes almost besides the point because it's still always framed as this insinuating or this initiating event, which it is not. It is a response to severe oppression and violence. And again, you can speak to some of the similarities that the people of Lebanon have been experiencing, like not just in the occupied territories, but the impact that war, both of those wars that we've referenced have had on the people of Lebanon over all these years who are still, you know, so now you've got the, you we're kind of we're moving into modern times and you're going to lead here because you know more, but I want to just kind of throw in that it's not just uh, the leaders of Hamas that were targeted in Lebanon. The U S intelligence has reported that they have hit many Hezbollah targets, many civilian targets, and they've also hit the LAF targets, which is really upsetting the Americans because that is the U.S. trained and backed alternative <laughs> that they'd like to have for. And again, this is just a mirror of what they're attempting in Palestine. And I'm sure we can name many other states where. Yeah, so we're, we're going to yeah. we'll talk the the Lebanese armed forces who have lost, and I'm going to say martyrs, because their job as a, like their their purpose as an armed force is to protect, technically to protect your borders. In the South, for us, is to protect our borders from the Israeli occupying forces. To ensure the sovereignty so, of the so Lebanese to die, people, to, right? to, die, to die in the line of duty is kind of the definition of your martyrdom there. And they've, like the, the Israeli military forces have targeted Lebanese armed forces the Lebanese army forces based some one of the bases a few weeks ago, uh, multiple times, killing I think not just one, I think more than one uh, officer on duty or soldiers. Um, but again, the Lebanese armed force is a weakened military force that is, like you said, the the alternative solution that the U.S. is trying to provide. But we're talking about a Lebanese armed forces who still have tanks from the 1970s, whose all their modern gear is decommissioned gear that's from the U.S. that is no longer allowed to be used in the U.S. that is now donated or sold. 
Okay, so when I say U.S. trained and backed, we're not talking about like Israeli style U.S. trained no. and backed. See, there's a big difference between a German, let's say, military that goes and trains in the U.S. or an Israeli military that goes and trains or Canadian military that trains in conjunction with the U.S. military versus kind of like throwing your crumbs at and leftovers and saying we're training you and we're providing you with, with help. Because there's much to be said and people have argued, and there's evidence, <laughs> that Benjamin Netanyahu funded Hamas, or at least encouraged its development, and that... And a, and a divide-and-conquer move. Absolutely. And so there's a vested interest in kind of having a continued struggle rather than a clear winner. And this is, again, you know, equally applied to Palestine and Lebanon. And so I think people can start to see why there has been so many rocket launches from Lebanon into Israeli territories uh, in response to the siege on Gaza. So we'll, we'll jump into the Lebanese side of this that, that started to happen at the start of October, the second week of October. Um, when Israel started to, to bomb heavily, to bomb the north of Gaza heavily, um, I think the Lebanese resistance took it upon itself to start targeting military outposts all across the southern Lebanese southern borders as a way to alleviate a little bit of the pressure. And in doing so, it has drawn a huge amount of the Israeli reserve forces and the Israeli military forces towards the Lebanese northern borders. Um, so ha had it not done so, Israel would have, let's say, sent those forces or a big chunk of them to the borders with the West Bank or with Gaza. So by doing so, I think the Lebanese, armed, the Lebanese resistance has just taken it upon itself to partake in this, let's say, act of resistance. Someone has to. I hope most people can hear this and understand. When, when we call, when we call, when we call our representatives here, to force them to 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 ask for a ceasefire, to demand a ceasefire. That's us partaking in an act of resistance to a genocide that we're witnessing. Well, the Lebanese resistance and its military capability is able to target military outposts, and I think in the last couple of days. Um, Hassan Nasrallah, the, the, the head of the Lebanese Islamic resistance, uh, a.k.a. Hezbollah, um, talked about the fact that they are intentionally not targeting civilians that are left in the settlements on the northern borders. They are avoiding targeting civilians, although they are fully within the reach of their artillery, their missiles, their whatever ammunition they have. They, their target has been, on a daily basis, the military basis. The, and, and Israel has some really big bases along its northern borders that serve as surveillance and drone control. And, like, I don't know all the military terms for all that stuff. Um, there's a few other... They've launched the blimp. I don't know. People might have seen that. It's a giant blimp that has massive kind of radar capability, completely a gift of the United States military regime. But uh, it's it's been it's been trying to just weaken the 
the capability of Israel to 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 engage in an all-out war. And there's real validity to this because the Washington Post reports that U.S. intelligence is telling Israel that they likely cannot afford to engage in a full-on battle with Hezbollah at this time with all of the resources going into fucking genocide that they've left themselves stretched too thin. Now, Israel's reporting that they've ended combat in the north. However, we know that they're just headed to the south where everyone has been squeezed into a smaller and smaller space to make it easier for them to kill. Uh, However, you know, this is just to say those actions by Hezbollah are not fluff, right? They have impact and justification, frankly, right? Because they are actually doing what they're meant to, right? They're making Israel question that northern front a little bit and drawing away genocidal resources. They're resource bleeding the Israeli military, which is there was, um, there's at some point a report or uh, a report that an American ex-military spoke about how the the attacks that the Palestinian resistance is doing, when they launch their Qassam rockets, which are cheaply made rockets of a few, like, thousand dollars per rocket, when they launch them onto the Iron, and, and the Iron Dome has to intercept them, the Iron Dome is spending about $100,000 per interception. So you throw a $1,000 rocket, you get intercepted with 100000 So then when you throw... A hundred of those rockets, you're now bleeding into the millions of dollars with every, like, response. It's, uh, the resistance movements in the Middle East are not dumb movements. <laughs> they, the, the, the level of education that is involved within those movements is insane. Um, you, you ever get the chance to sit and talk with people who actually are involved in, in resistance and you realize the level of education that they have just dedicated to understand what is economic warfare, what is uh, political warfare, what is military warfare. Like, it's just... So, it's not just attacking Israel to draw them into a war. No, it's, it's, it's more attacking them into bleeding their resources economically. And again, like, you see the narrative shaped around... Not that maybe those attacks are stupid, but perhaps they're they're futile, right? And that that isn't that isn't the case at all. And one of the main tenets of resistance, particularly guerrilla style resistance, is the need to wear down your enemy. You can't meet your enemy head on. That is the purpose of guerrilla warfare. It's not two military forces that are equal in capabilities. That's why they can't meet head on, right? And so sneak attacks and and there's a lot of strategy involved. And it's not only applicable in warfare, right? It's how, you know, the way that you describe this is what Lebanon is doing with the resources it has. And it gives validity to the tactics that we're seeing here to make blockades, to shut down Indigo one day at a time, to 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 like bleed it dry. To talk about BDS. Yes, yes. And so like everyone has a role to play there, but it, it is part of legitimate resistance and it does work, right? 
in certain circumstances and and learning about previous successes because guerrilla warfare is not new, right? We had a guest on from the IRA and talking about how everything that they did and built on were previous revolutions from all over the globe. And, and we'll talk, uh, we'll, I'll throw in a small bone for those who, was it last year that they marched on Ottawa? With, who, the with, convidiates? With, with, with yeah with convoys to, to pretty much block the economic wheel of the capital. And the border, right? Is, is, that's where is it, isn't, that, isn't that a form of, technically, in their eyes, a form of resistance, right? <laughs> Don't but you then, give them that then, credit, Mo. <laughs> no, but we, we got to give credit where credit is due in terms of what, it, what, it's, <laughs> what it's done. But, 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 the, but the dissonance to not be able to see what's happening now on the ground as a form of resistance, that dissonance, that like schizophrenia almost. It's maddening it's just, sometimes. It's, it's insane. And it's not even a right-left uh, hypocrisy. It's no, kind of no, it's not permeated right everywhere. And it's, yeah, it is. I, I describe it as the twilight zone sometimes. I think it's, I've said it's that. It's not right-left whatsoever. It's, yeah. I want to go back. Like, I feel like... <laughs> I'm going back to July, that July war, because the more I read about it, the more it was kind of the writing was on the wall. July 2006 for our listeners. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we'll have some show notes in there for folks to do a little bit more digging. But, you know, it, when you read about it, it also ended, which is really, you know, uh, typical on how we write wars or definitely how we depict um, movements of liberation. So there's a definite date that it was ended, but part of the process became a discussion on, you know, who would police the area, who would, there were, a UN resolution was passed to disarm Hezbollah. They were not a legitimate resistance anymore. They, in the eyes of the world, right, that was the result. And Hopefully I don't have to draw those parallels where everyone is asking for Hamas to disarm and then we have Biden and Netanyahu in negotiations talking about who should rule. Right now they're talking about the north of Gaza because that's essentially been annexed. Uh, Listen, Hamas, Hamas will disarm, let's say. Someone else will pick up arms within the next five years, ten years. If we want to be re realistic. But Hamas won't disarm. That is, I think that's just empirically impossible the way that what's happened has happened just like Hezbollah does not disarm and in the end the U.S. did not get to decide who controlled if anything if anything the Lebanese resistance has grown stronger from 2006 till now uh, the U.S. military actually issued a report for its personnel post the 2006 war in terms of here are the things that we should not be doing. Like, learn from the mistakes that Israel has done in its war in Lebanon. They clearly stated that it, Israel lost in every possible way in that, in that war. And it's, Hezbollah has managed to grow from then till now. That's 2006. We're talking, we're 2024 now, almost 20 years. But the, the human toll was huge for... Yeah, no, they they didn't learn their lesson, though, or at least Israel didn't 
learn their lesson, or perhaps this is the intention. You know, you say they lost, but they still, you know, occupy territories. They pummeled parts of Beirut. Oh, they, like, like the destruction that we're seeing in Gaza is now folds and folds of what also we witnessed in, in Beirut, but for the density of what Beirut is. So Beirut is about 600 kilometers squared, really, really small, highly populated because it's not laid out like cities here. There's no homes. It's all apartment building. I like to call it the concrete jungle. It's just apartment buildings. They pummeled the southern suburbs of the city. And when we talk about the southern suburbs of the city, it's like talking about uh, like uh, two, three kilometers away from you. Like anywhere where you are in Beirut, you're about two, three kilometers away radius-wise from anywhere. Um, they pummeled apartment buildings down. They were just dropping uh, unguided bombs and guided bombs and vacuum bombs and just just for the sheer point of destroying, for destruction. No, 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 no. They were trying to get the hostages back, Mo. Right? Wasn't that the premise? That was that was the major incursion. That was the start of the war. There's always a, there's and always a reason when a, when a tantrum is thrown by a child, the ex child will always find a reason for their tantrum. And they will cling on to that reason as their tantrum is getting wilder and wilder. And as their rage is becoming bigger and bigger. No, because you're letting uh, Israel off the hook there because they are not children. They have crafted these situations. They are the child of the their settler mother and father in the West. But yeah, but they're also not reacting to outside stimuli. They are creating said... You know what I mean? Like they they create the conditions for armed resistance against them and so that they can use any they were waiting. They were waiting for Hamas's next big move to do this, whether it happened on October seventh or whether something happened six months later, or maybe it would be like another great well, month of return. In the, meantime, in the meantime, they were just starving. They already were starving and like, the UN had the report, the, the United Nations had the report, was it four or five years ago, about the unlivable conditions in the in Gaza Strip? Like, it was already deemed unlivable. This is before any October. It was already deemed it's hard for people to go back and remember that or have time to talk. I know, it's our, short, it's our short-term memory. Yeah. The blockade. Our ability to, to forget. Yeah. Yeah, the like blockade on Gaza has been for years, and I can't even remember if I've talked about it on the show, but it includes things like baby bottles and dairy products. It includes and everything. For people, like people treats. in the West, people in the West struggle to understand that everything, everything, includes everything that went into Gaza through the crossing borders with, on their western crossing borders with uh, occupied Palestine or on the southern crossing border with Rafah, with, with Egypt, was controlled by Israel. Like, Egypt was not fully in control of what was going in and out. And then when people would be like, well, why did they, they build tunnels out of Gaza? It was like, 
Would you not build tunnels out of your house if someone just blocked all the doors and fed you through the window one piece of bread every two weeks? Like, would you not dig tunnels with your nails to sneak food to your kids? You would. They would. And that's why it's important to keep people reminding the conditions that existed for so long before October 7th. And I kind of want to go back to the food in the blockades and the unlivable conditions because not only are the bombs killing people now, but we know that folks are also dying of starvation in Gaza. And this is by design. It's not just because they're surrounded by soldiers and it's just logistically impossible to get food. It's because those motherfuckers have targeted bakeries and farms. And this is on top of the blockade that exists on the entire region. And they and this is historically how they've attacked settlements as well, by raising olive farms and destroying the trees and strawberry fields. And we've all seen footage of this. And like famine has been used many, many, many times in warfare. And we're absolutely seeing it again, except this time around, they admit to it. And and maybe not in, in this context, they've explicitly said, you know, we will starve them until they hand over Hamas. Well, this, is, this is also, and this is where it's more enraging the fact that we are now witnessing the sheer belligerence like the just from the politicians to the settlers to military uh, commanders Israel Israeli military commanders Israeli politicians Israeli settlers uh, Israeli uh, parliament members the fact that we are witnessing it with our eyes it's, it's not like they're speaking about this behind closed doors or off the records. It is pretty well documented by their own media, pretty well documented by the world's media, pretty well spread out on every social media. And we are still trying to convince people of the vile and uh, like the evil that is the settler state, the apartheid state of Israel. That is what's tiring. This is what, what takes a big toll on me. Like, why are we still, like, instead of at this point having all of us already knowing that this is just vile, do I really need to convince you with all the evidence that is out there? If you're, like, I, I don't know what, how twisted or how, I'll go back to the episode of fascism that you guys did a few weeks ago, and maybe that's what it is. It's, it's, it's the fascism that we are now living in that just denies us. Canadians are kind of our own breed of obliviousness. We have a real kind of vision of what our our role is and and our persona and it's usually quite the opposite of what our what we're doing as a state. You know, and I started reading I started reading the Tyler Chipley book that you guys you had the episode uh, about a month a month and a half ago. Uh, about the role of Canada in the world, especially in terms of settler colonial, not just our role as settlers here and the genocide, the ongoing genocide, we're still pushing onto the, the, the indigenous population of Turtle Island, where it's just our role in the global settler colonial system is just, yeah, 
part of our role we look at as a virtue. And I'm talking about accepting refugees. And now before we go into this conversation, in no part, one of my favorite t-shirts is, it just says, welcome refugees. And I love to wear it around my conservative fucking town. I, I am of the position that everyone has the right to migrate wherever they want to go. Right? I don't believe in borders. Yes, I know they exist. I just believe they shouldn't. Okay. So before we get into that, know that. But you know, know what? That. Just, you know what? what? You're not the only one. You know who also is, has that belief? Indigenous people who have lived here from time immemorial. They are the ones who were welcoming to the settlers when the settlers arrived. Let's not forget that. Right? They didn't take up arm from the start. And it's the same and it's the same and it's the same and it's the same thing for indigenous Palestinians when we go back in history. They were welcoming to the to the the settlers that came, the, the, the Jewish settlers that had fled Nazi Europe. But then tables turn and, and political movements start to grow and and Zionism starts to grow and military Zionism starts to take shape. And at that point, you start to take arms. Residential schools here start to happen. Forced migration starts to happen. Starvation and famine and diseases start to happen. And then you take up arm. And at that point, you then get labeled as a terrorist by no one other than the powerful settler. You take up arms or perhaps you flee. So like back to the refugee question, not to advocate for us not to let the people of Gaza come, but that is a bit of a delicate situation because I believe this push there was a tweet sent out by Loki, and uh, he was reporting. I should have grabbed the source there. But Tony Blair has been recruited by Israel to lobby Western governments to take in as many Palestinian refugees as possible. And we ourselves are exploring this. The Canadian government, the cabinet just decided they'll let uh, like just under a thousand folks who have family here. There's criteria. The fucked up thing about that one, though, is that Israel is doing the security screening. And so I find, I just want to explore this for a second, because I find Israel has put itself in a bit of a conundrum. So in order to complete the genocide, right, they can't literally wipe everybody else out, or at least I'm telling myself that. The goal is to displace folks as well as martyr them. And in order to do that, they do need nations to take them in because they don't actually want a refugee camp. They want the whole land. They don't want any resistance building. They want these folks dispersed throughout the globe. That's what completes the genocide because they're, it's really hard to maintain your culture. Although the Palestinian diaspora is a great example of resilience in this, but that's not the point. They deserve to live in fucking Palestine. They deserve to live in a safe Palestine. And I know that doesn't exist, so I don't. I understand that people are trying to flee. And yes, there should be safe havens for anyone trying to flee. But for us to latch on to now the refugee narrative and to think that that can absolve us from not stopping this, 
with whatever means necessary. And we will just simply take the victims in. For me, that is especially coming from the Canadian state, because it's not benevolence. It's never fucking will be right. It it's, it's complicity in this genocide by entering in those agreements that I bet you started well before October 7th. I imagine the taking of as many Palestinian refugees as possible has always been part of the discussion between Israeli diplomats and their counterparts throughout the world. They want, they always want all Palestinians out of Palestine, clearly. You just need to see the shrinking map, the, the, the embargoes, yeah. the starvation. It just and doesn't, doesn't, take a, it. doesn't take a smart human being to read numbers. Very basic progression of numbers of the number of indigenous Palestinian, Arab Palestinians, and I'm going to refer. I'm going to call them Arab Palestinians, not not Muslim Palestinians, not not Christian Palestinians, not Jewish Palestinians, Arab Palestinians. That is just dwindling. But I think like Israel's also painted themselves into a corner here, though, right? Well, because they have spent the last well, they've spent a long time, but it's not seventy-five years up. plus ninety days. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it, because it's like this kind of asterisk in the last 90 days, like it's on hyperspeed of what we've seen for 75 years. But they've really demonized all Palestinians. So now they're in this position of having to beg people to remove and take in Palestinians while painting them as all criminals, as all terrorists, as all worthy of bombs dropping on their homes. Right. So how can you turn around and be like, here, here, why don't you take Hamas, right? Like, because they've sold this narrative that there are no civilians in Gaza. That's, you know, those are things that they've actually said. And so I think, yeah, it's a bit of a delicate there no, situation. There is, no rhyme, there is no rhyme and reason, and there is no logic to any of their foreign diplomacy, any of their, oof, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if it's just, those are all signs of, uh, pariah state that's just like a near collapse of... I was going to say that is an essential stage though right like people kind of gasp when we say that you have to politically isolate Israel right it sounds like you want to erase them and I'm not going to like get into the fact that an ethno state shouldn't exist we're talking but about a state we're not do. talking about a people let's, let's stop let's if stop, I repeat so that stop for my people. audience I'm assuming they're not listening anymore <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, but yeah, it's, it's. We did that. We did that. We did that not a long time ago with an apartheid state in South Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I you always read, and people we've told each other, and I, I felt warmth when people would say like all tyrannical, violent regimes fall. But we can't rest on that, right? They don't fall on their own. They fall because they create the conditions with which resistance is inevitable. It is the only logical choice for people. And so when they get so terrible for so long, then you, you have created inherent resistance within people and resilience. And so it becomes even more difficult. But... Just yeah. we're gonna go back to we're gonna back, go back because we had started talking about the July War in Lebanon, the two thousand six war, and I forgot. I think we drifted off. That happens when you have ADHD. <laughs> yeah, so we were we were talking about the destruction, and two thousand six that we witnessed in Lebanon, 
That, again, what I'm, what I'm seeing in Gaza also is very similar to that destruction that I witnessed with my own eyes happen in, in Lebanon. And I was, I was there in 2006, like I was not far. I was about a kilometer and a half from the southern suburb of Beirut. Uh, I was displaced out of my home, uh, but I, I purposefully moved out of my home to go uh, help with internally displaced refugees. Um, there was, I think, about a million, a million point two displaced, internally displaced refugees in the 2006 war that moved from the south of Lebanon towards the central and the north side of Lebanon that were taken into public schools all across Lebanon, into homes, um, public spaces, wherever possible. So I left my house and I helped with a whole bunch of my scouts leaders at that point, I was part of the Lebanese Scouts Movement, and uh, we took care of refugees in a public school. We had 500 refugees that we were taking care of from 24-7 for the 40 days. It was 30 days of war, but refugees didn't just go back as soon as the war ended, internally displaced refugees. And that's there's a part of that that scares the shit out of me because I saw it firsthand at, from my, my family member who lost homes in that 2006 war, who didn't have homes to go back to. So for the time being after the war, they were still internally displaced refugees for months and months and months at a time until the rebuilding process started to happen. And now in Lebanon, the rebuilding process started to happen because we still had open borders with Syria. We had open borders in our airport. I don't know what the rebuilding process will look like in Gaza. If we, if something doesn't happen, there's no rebuilding Gaza because Israel is annexing it and taking it from the people of Palestine. So if it's rebuilt in their vision right now, it seems like Gaza will be a resort city for Israeli settlers. So although, you know, when I think of the rebuilding of Beirut and like there have been urban settings that have been demolished in war and rebuilt, you make that point and Israel is kind of making the point that that's, that's not the plan here. When they say they've destroyed Hamas's infrastructure, they've destroyed all infrastructure. It's but then they play, they play under, they play the, under the agenda. This is a Hamas run Gaza Strip. And, and we again will play like this is a Hamas democratically elected government that Israel and the U.S. both agreed that the elections were fair and square. And when they were elected the first time, there was no, there was no foul play in those elections. But now... No, the powers that be... It's a destruction, yeah. Yeah, we're fine no, but with, the dis- with the destruction what of not, it's 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 a... Uh, it's a scorched land. That's what they're doing. Like they're your your last statement brought up two points that I kind of want to hit before we we sign off. But uh, you talked about refugees not returning home right away, and we talk about the delicacy uh, or the delicateness of to leave Gaza or not to leave Gaza. Right, how folks are likely struggling with, you know, not between necessarily armed resistance uh, or leaving, but 
a variation of sorts. So you have journalists, you have people that like survivors of the Nekba have the keys to their home and they want to return. They know and they've experienced generations of permanent displacement. And that must play into their decision on whether to apply for refugee status or not, whether or not to flee if you can, you know, and that's just not an option if you understand the borders of Gaza. It also brought up another point that I wanted to make where I was corrected online um, in my language that I had used. And it wasn't just nitpicking on my language. We talk about how language is very important. And there was a few times where I referred to the people under siege as Gazans. I know my pronounce, <laughs> my accent there is horrible, but it's not my pronunciation that was the problem, even though it is. It's the fact that they're not all from Gaza. They Palestine is full of internally displaced people still. That Gaza is mostly a refugee camp. Yeah, and, and that's what I, I was going to point out, that these are not first time displaced people and we're talking we're not talking about their families who were displaced some of them were displaced in their lifetime once and twice already some of these people are some of these people some of these people are originally from the north of occupied palestine that have just been driven away some of them are from the west of palestine some of them are from all across the occupied palestinian territory and they've just landed in Gaza because that was the two options. It was the West Bank and Gaza. So, like, people, I want people to like, kind of close their eyes and imagine that shrinking map. I, we've made it our cover art. It's You, you can't not have seen it. Uh, the original 1947 map of Palestine. And I think, you know, it should be a little more nuanced than it is, but there's four variations and... The shrinkage that occurs is astonishing. And you have to imagine that all of those people in the areas that are no longer labeled Palestine on world map have either become part of the Palestinian diaspora that you see around you, or they have gone into the West Bank and almost in Gaza. And which is why it's so densely populated as well. Or some of them, we also got to give it to the, those who are still on those territories with uh, third-class citizenship status with an Israeli. Like, they are Arab Israelis. Like, Israel has granted citizenship to Palestinians who decided to stay, but they are treated as third-class, not, not second-class, third-class citizens. When we talk about democratic state of Israel, but we refuse to see the injustices of how that state goes about its own internal business, it's mind-boggling. And that's part of the apartheid argument, like the way that your ethnicity or your religion play part in how much you can participate democratically and the extent of your right of movement in particular. But, and thank you for reminding me that I had left some Palestinians out of the discussion. But the point is like, imagine people, imagine you have been driven as a police, as a person, as a family, as a generational culture, you've been 
driven to an area smaller and smaller and smaller. And now that is under intense bombardment, you know, a war zone. And now it's like, do you leave knowing the pattern of behavior, knowing Gaza is like the last bit, along with the West Bank, the last bit, you know, hopefully not forever from the river to the sea, you know, eventually Palestine will be free. But right now that's all it is. And if you leave, that's it. You're leaving it to Israeli settlers. And will you ever get it back? Like it's been many, many years since that those original borders have existed with many attempts to regain some of that territory, right? And so I can't imagine the, facing that choice as And it's the urgency a, a of mother. we either resist now or we, we I, I don't, there's no waiting. There's no waiting to resist in the future or to wait to be hopeful for a change in the future if you don't resist now. Absolutely. You don't want to think about what that or was, so did you? You didn't want to we finish want, that. We always, want to, we always want hope, right? And we always want to cling on to hope. But hope comes with the act of resistance. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.